When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, CJ here. Welcome to a DHP bonus episode. This is an episode I recorded a little while back on one of the long work-related drives I've been doing lately. And I finally got around to editing a bit, cleaning it up a bit, and adding this intro so that I can share it with you. And if you're not a supporter of the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon or Subscribestar, I've decided to put this episode out on the public feed as well for a limited time. So if it's relatively soon after I publish this, you may be listening to it on the regular public feed, in which case I would humbly ask that you consider becoming a supporter of my work on the Dangerous History Podcast if you are not already doing so. And whether it's soon after publication or not, if you're listening to this via Patreon or Subscribestar because you're a supporter of my work, I would like to sincerely thank you for supporting my work and just say that I hope you will continue to do so. But without further ado, here is Orange Marches of the Woke Progressives. Howdy, everybody. This is CJ, your cowboy in the jungle, rolling with the punches, playing out all my hunches, making the best of whatever comes my way, which has been particularly challenging lately. I'm currently doing a long drive today as part of one of the side jobs that I'm doing to try and make up the gap of insufficient podcast income to get by on. So, got a long drive, and so I am taking advantage of this drive to record something that has been bouncing around in my head for a while. So, this one is going to be called Orange Marches of the Woke Left. Now, you you probably are going to have a hard time understanding what that means unless you're fairly familiar with the modern history of Ireland, in which case you might know where I'm going with this, or at least have a hankering or an intimation, perhaps. You guys know that I talk a lot about sort of like what people might consider pop culture stuff, because I think these things are profoundly important. And while I do think that the reason that wokeism and the culture war is getting such a signal boost in the last bunch of years is because powerful state and corporate institutions are using it strategically and cynically um, for a divide-and-rule strategy to keep, you know, average Americans at each other's throats over these sorts of cultural issues. 
in order to distract them from the fact that they're all being fucked over by the very state and corporate institutions that are stoking the fires and, you know, like hitting the fireplace of the cultural war with a bellows. Even though I understand that it is essentially a cynical divide and rule ploy in large part, at least from the people at the very top, from their perspective, you know, from the people at the CIA, at the corporate media, right? The, the billionaires that go to Epstein's Island who pull the strings of stuff, you know, that from their perspective, they don't really give a shit, most of them, about the cultural war one way or the other. They see it as a useful thing that they can use to divide and distract the proles. However, a lot of the mid and lower level kind of foot soldiers and lackeys of the cultural war, who in terms of powerful institutions in the establishment generally tend to side on what we might call the woke side of things, um, a lot of the, the mid to lower level people actually carrying this out, the foot soldiers of the woke side of the culture war, many of them are genuine true believers. In fact, I would say probably the vast majority of them are genuine true believers in the woke quasi-Maoist culture war. And so as a result, even though I wish we didn't have to talk about these things, I wish everybody would just talk about, you know, stopping unnecessary wars, reigning in or eliminating the national security state, ending the American empire, bringing the troops home, abolishing the Federal Reserve, abolishing the CIA, you know, all these sorts of things. I I wish we could talk about that. Fixing the economy. Unfortunately, the culture war is there. And... You know, sometimes you've got to fight the battle that is thrust upon you before you can fight the battles that you really, you know, are your larger priority. And I think the culture war matters. And I'm not a, you know, reactionary, across-the-board, cultural hard-right winger. I'm not. Honestly, I'm pretty culturally liberal by the standards of not that long ago. You know, a decade ago or a little bit more, I would have said that in most social issues, I lined up more with the cultural left than with the right, sort of the, you know, religious right of the George W. Bush years, those sorts of people, kind of moral majority types. I generally tended to side more with the left in that context. But now the cultural left has gone so far deranged into just crazy wokeism, you know, and all this stuff about like, I mean, you don't need me to tell you, right? All the stuff that they do um, with race and sex and gender and all these sorts of things. And whereas, for example, I was very personally, openly, vocally supportive of gay marriage, for example, being a thing, uh, long before the vast majority of Democratic Party politicians, at least publicly, were willing to openly support the idea of gay marriage being legal, right? I mean, go back, like, in Barack Obama's first campaign in 2008, he still was not openly, you know, he probably was supportive of it in his own head, but publicly, he was still not willing to openly endorse gay marriage in 2008. And I don't think Hillary Clinton was either, as, you know, most Democratic Party politicians of that era we're not fully on board with legalizing gay, gay marriage, you know, other than a handful of people in Congress from, you know, very, very blue areas of very, very blue states. And yet here I find myself as somebody who was ahead of most of 
the American people and politicians, as far as I can tell, on saying, like, yeah, let gay people get married. If if two gay people want to get married, like, why is that a problem for you? You can think whatever you want to think about it, but if they're not harming you, then it's it shouldn't be your business. Um, you know, the, the kind of general libertarian attitude, right? But then it went so far off into loony land where it's now like if your kid is going to school in a blue school district and like, like let's say, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point, but you understand what I'm saying probably. Like if your son um, happens to want to play with a doll a little bit, in school, like, next thing you know, they want to funnel him into the pipeline of, like, we need to get you on hormone blockers as soon as possible, and, you know, like, your, your daughter wants to play with trucks instead of Barbies, and instead of what we used to do, which is like, well, you know, let her do what she wants to do, maybe she'll be kind of a tomboy, who knows, you know, let her let her grow up and figure it out, it might just be a phase, um, and instead it turns into, like, well, you know, your daughter uh, is playing with trucks and, you know, is interested in football, so, like, let's go ahead and yeah, she's five, but let's go ahead and talk about hormone blockers and, you know, all this sort of thing, um, all this crazy stuff, and um, went off the rails into crazy town. And so in recent years, I found myself lining up more and more with the cultural right, not with the most extreme elements, you know, the crazy reactionaries who want to institute like a traditional fundamentalist Christian of some denomination or another. It's always their denomination that they assume is going to take over, but, you know, to institute like a theocracy, you know, like a a hardcore Christian version of an American Taliban regime or something like this, you know, who actually do want to make the handmaid's tale a reality or something like that. I'm still not with those people, you know, but, um, certainly I'm, I'm more and more completely not on board with the craziest of the other side either. And, and I currently, I see them as the larger threat because they have way more institutional power and way more money behind them at the moment. But one of the reasons that in recent years I've talked even more than I used to about things like wokeism taking over the entertainment industry, you know, which has always leaned left, the motion picture and television industries in this country have always been dominated by left-wingers pretty much since their inception. But, you know, there's degrees, right? There's degrees of just how crazy radical they are, and there's degrees of just how much of their beliefs are they trying to shoehorn into every single fucking TV show and movie that they make. So, like, yeah, you can go watch movies and TV shows from decades ago, and, you know, you can often pick up little pieces here and there of the writers and directors and producers' political prejudices, but it was, in previous eras, much more likely to be worked organically into the story, to be more kind of subtle, allegory, metaphor, not be super-duper on the nose. And they didn't feel the need to shoehorn that shit into, like, literally everything they make, even where it is completely out of place and is just, like, jarringly taking you out of the, the story, the movie, the show, whatever it is. Also, from just a consumer and aesthetic point of view, and I very much agree with somebody like Brett Easton Ellis on this, that the wokeism takeover of entertainment media since maybe, you know, circa 2015-16 especially, just from an aesthetic point of view, it has destroyed the quality of these things as pieces of entertainment and art. And so just the overall quality, setting aside ideology... The overall quality as entertainment and art 
of the vast majority of TV shows and movies over the past, you know, seven years or so, it really spiked with the Trump election. The overall quality of these things as entertainment and as art has gone just in the toilet. I mean, movies from, say, the 1990s that I thought back then were, like, pretty mid, were so-so, I rewatch some of those now and I'm like, holy cow, this is Citizen fucking Kane compared to, you know, 90% of the movies coming out now, right? So just from a quality standpoint, as somebody who's a cinephile and who also appreciates high-quality TV series, as a person who used to be a giant fan of movies, who used to go to the movies all the time, and now, not just because of the advent of streaming, but because of even more so the shit quality of 90% of new movies over the past bunch of years, I probably um, average right now going to the movie theater to see a movie in the theater and, and you know, pay for that and everything. Um, I probably only do it like two times a year. That's probably what I've averaged. Like, even after, you know, the craziest of the COVID lockdown shit ratcheted back. And I'm someone, like, I still enjoy going to a movie theater. But I'm not going to go to a movie theater to see some piece of garbage like Octogenarian Jones and the latest insufferable Mary Sue. Or whatever is the latest, you know, Marvel piece of woke propaganda garbage. Sorry, but I'm not dropping movie theater money and going through the hassles of going to the theater for that. So that's one of the reasons why in the last several years I've done more and more on this podcast, you know, talking about movies and what's wrong with them. You know, I've collaborated multiple times with good friend of the show, Alex von Sternberg of History Impossible, who's also a big cinephile and also, you know, shares a lot um, probably virtually all of my criticisms of woke Hollywood. It's partly just because I used to love movies. And particularly, you know, once you got into kind of like the post-Sopranos golden age of high-quality TV, you know, the, the era in which you got things like Breaking Bad, and you got things like The Wire, and so many other just incredibly well-written and well-done television series. Um, I loved all, all that stuff, too. And that's equally fallen off a cliff in terms of quality and become largely just a whole bunch of evangelical wokest propaganda. But the other reason that I've kind of felt compelled to talk more and more, particularly about wokeism taking over TV and movies, aside from just I'm a fan of those things, or at least used to be when they were, you know, of much better quality and when they were much less blatantly propagandistic and way too on the nose and and also all the same right i mean you you can predict with over 90 percent accuracy exactly what's going to happen right like as soon as as soon as i heard that kathleen kennedy's lucasfilm right under the disney umbrella was going to make a new indiana jones movie as soon as i heard that was a thing i in my head was like oh okay i know exactly how this is going to go and i was almost entirely right you know i was like okay they're going to make him they're going to treat him like luke skywalker and han solo in disney star wars trilogy they're going to make him a washed up loser of an old man who's completely broken and useless and they're going to deconstruct him. And by the way, there's ways that you could do a story like that and have the guy eventually make a comeback. They could be great. You know, look at like some of the Rocky movies 
um, particularly uh, some of the, the latter Rocky movies where, I forget if it was Rocky Five, maybe, where he's kind of like an older guy and he's having trouble and he's sort of trying to get his mojo back. Like, there's ways that you can do that story of a guy who was a champion, was a hero, who then, you know, fell in hard times, and you, you can make a great redemption story. And yeah, you can have a younger character playing an important role of, like, helping him to sort of get his mojo back. But that's not what they do. Like, particularly the Disney film companies and productions, that's not what they do. What they do is they have a beloved character who was, you know, a favorite hero of many people for decades, whether it's Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Indiana Jones, like, we could just go on and on and on and on. And they have him be a broken-down, bitter old man, and it's not like he even... And it's always he they do this to, right? It's always it's always a male character. It's not like they they turn it into like an uplifting redemption story where this guy, this once great champ or hero or whatever, falls on hard times, but then possibly with the help of a, of a new younger character, gets uh, back on his feet and you know becomes a hero again, which could be a, an excellent story. In fact, that's the narrative I'm trying to spin my own brain's internal narrative into right now, you know, with all the hard times I've fallen on in recent years, one of the things that I'm trying to do as I'm trying to use, you know, CBT and things like that, not CBD, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy methods and things like this and journaling, one of the things I'm trying to do as I'm really working hard to reprogram my thought patterns from the, the horrific depression I've been in is to reframe the narrative and say, not I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I fucked up, but to say, no, this is just the opening part of a redemption story. This is just the opening phase of a comeback and recovery story. And yeah, I've had a very hard last few years, and I've gone to some pretty dark places, but this is the part of the story right now where I'm turning that around and where we're going to have some heroic montages and things and I'm going to turn things around and be a hero again, right? That's sort of the self-narrative I'm trying to rewire my own thought patterns into. But that's not what they do. What they typically do is they deconstruct the beloved hero and they never really have him make a true, genuine um, comeback or redemption or whatever. Instead, they do with the old man hero who's fallen on hard times, essentially they do what they did with Rey in relation to Luke Skywalker or what they did with, I forget her name, I didn't see the movie, I watched some trailers and, you know, reviews from a few reviewers I trust and was like, yeah, I can't bring myself to even, even to hate watch the latest, you know, Indiana Jones installment. Um, I just can't do it. I'm just so sick of this shit. But, you know, same deal where it's a younger female and or non-white character who is essentially a Mary, a Mary Sue, um, who's, you know, perfect and better than the old hero at everything, better even than he was in his prime, of course, right? Who's able to master everything um, immediately in a way that the old hero had to struggle with, in, even in his prime. And, you know, the hero, the old hero is a complete loser and um, basically gets dragged and led around through the new movie by the, the new, you know, Mary Sue hero. And um, basically becomes, at best, a sidekick in his own movie, as was done to 
Indiana Jones in this latest film, as was done to, you know, the legacy characters, except for Princess Leia, of course, in the Disney Star Wars trilogy, as was done, you know, in many of the recent Marvel Phase 4 things, where they, they took a hero and then they, you know, gave him a female sidekick, which was way better than him in every way, and essentially the original hero becomes a sidekick in his own movie, right? Like, the Hawkeye show was really about whatever the hell the character's name was, uh, the young woman. Um, the Loki show was basically about, you know, female Loki and how she's so much better than male Loki. And my understanding is it's largely what was done to Nick Fury in the recent whatever the hell it was called, I don't even remember, Nick Fury series on Disney Plus that nobody watched and that even the critics thought was shit. So... Anyway, this is what happens when I cut loose and go off the cuff, but, um, lost my train of thought a little bit. But anyway, so I think that these woke deconstructions of beloved heroes, beloved franchises, and all these sorts of things, not only do they end up being shit from the standpoint of, you know, art and aesthetics, and also entertainment, but they also are damaging, because people need heroes to look up to. Now, you might be thinking, well, CJ, don't you often, you know, deconstruct heroes from history? Don't you, like, you know, point out the the dirt on Abraham Lincoln or the dirt on George Washington or the dirt on, you know, some other heroic figure that people are often led to see in a, you know, very heroic or even saintly light? And the answer is yes, because I think it's important to debunk or deconstruct hero myths when they are about real historical figures, and they are propagandistic in nature. Because, you know, why does the establishment, for example, put Lincoln on such a propaganda pedestal, right? It's not because they have anything particularly that they love about Lincoln. It's because they can use the portrayal of him as a saintly, almost Christ-like figure, as a way to glorify the United States federal government, as a way to legitimize Lincoln's brutal crushing of secessionism and dissent, and as a way to then link any current attempts by the federal government to suppress dissent. You know, to legitimize it by saying, look, Lincoln's our greatest president. We all agree on that, right? And at least, you know, establishment conservatives and neocons will tend to say yes, you know. Um, more dissenting conservatives and well-read libertarians are going to go, well, no. But, you know, the vast majority of people are going to instinctively still see Lincoln as this heroic or even saintly or even Christ-like figure. And so they can then leverage that narrative to legitimize their oppression today their heavy-handedness at suppressing dissent and things like that. So I think it's important when somebody in history, an actual historical figure, is frequently portrayed as a hero, and I think they really shouldn't be for very good reasons. I have no problem whatsoever. In fact, I'm very uh, eager to debunk and deconstruct that mythology. However, I am also willing to give people their due when they do something genuinely heroic or noble or, you know, do the right thing against great odds in history. So even though I'm willing to deconstruct some historical, quote-unquote, heroes who I don't think deserve to be seen that way, I'm also quite quick to, especially if it's somebody who's not well-known or who I think is, you know, misunderstood or overlooked, to put the spotlight on them and say, hey, look, here's a person, you know, maybe you've, you've been led to believe is 
kind of a bad historical character, like, for example, Warren Harding, right, with my uh, interview not, not long ago with um, Ryan Walters, right, and his, which I largely pretty much entirely agree with, his, his revisionist take on Warren Harding as being, you know, not a terrible president, but in fact, in many ways, a great president, just depending on what criteria you use. You know, I'm happy to put the spotlight on him. I'm happy to put the spotlight on Smedley Butler as a heroic figure. I'm happy to put, uh, coming up in a few months, the spotlight a bit on JFK as a guy who, yes, very flawed, lots of contradictions, lots of, you know, aspects of his personality and um, politics that I don't agree with. And yet, you know, he was quite heroic in a number of ways, and I believe that's what ultimately got him killed. I'm, I'm more than happy to um, put the spotlight on people who tell the truth even when it costs them greatly, or who take a stand for the right thing to do. You know, Eugene, Eugene Debs, that's another example. Leader of the American Socialist Party for like a generation, right? Not a guy you would expect someone like me to instinctively sympathize with, but, you know, he was right about World War I and civil, civil liberties at a time when those were the two most important issues, in my opinion, in the Woodrow Wilson era. And he paid a great price. He literally went to prison for speaking the truth about America's involvement in World War I and the related suppression of civil liberties done by the Wilson administration. So I'm happy to debunk or deconstruct historical heroes who I don't believe deserve to be seen as such, but I'm also happy to do the opposite. And to, you know, kind of put the spotlight on and put on a little bit of a pedestal people who I think do deserve to be seen. And I always try to remember to say when I do a DHP Heroes episode, you know, I'm not telling you to worship somebody, you know, hero worship somebody in the sense of like treating them as as flawless and as, you know, somebody that you have to agree with 100% on everything and think they always did the right thing in every instance and were right about everything. And, you know, I'm against that when you're talking about genuine historical people who actually were flesh and blood humans. But I think in some cases, you know, with somebody like John F. Kennedy or somebody like Smedley Butler or somebody like Eugene Debs, I'm more than happy to say, look, yeah, plenty of things I, I don't agree with or would criticize about this person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm not saying I agree with everything they ever said or did or believed. But the heroic things that they did, in my calculus, far outweigh any of their flaws or things I don't like about them or whatever, right? But then, when we get into the realm of fiction, of actual fictional people who never even lived, to me, it's even more kind of important if it's fictional heroic characters that never were actually flesh and blood people but who for one reason or another resonate deeply with your culture I think it is very harmful and very dangerous to go around deconstructing those things especially if you don't ever bother to even properly reconstruct them, which, again, my understanding from um, listening to some reviews and synopses of the latest Indiana Jones movie, just using that as, as an example, my understanding is that Indiana Jones in that film never really kind of, like, redeems himself. Never really, you know, that, that even up to the very end, he's essentially being um, led around and all that by his goddaughter, which they had to do that so that there couldn't be any kind of love interest between them, I suppose, because as we all know, in modern Hollywood, romantic love between 
two people of different sexes is, like, really not cool. Right? The only romantic love you're ever able to portray is, um, you know, if it's LGBTQ romantic love. Romantic love and attraction between, you know, heterosexual people is to be mostly just completely left out of everything or to be portrayed as even a bad thing. So, you can say what you will about, you know, biblical stories and ancient myths like uh, the Greek myths, the Viking myths, you know, Hercules and whatever like that. And while those things still directly and indirectly affect many people in, you know, 21st century America's perceptions of heroism and how to be a hero and how to live a heroic life and how heroes act. If we're being brutally honest, with the exception of like, you know, devout religious, you know, fundamentalists and things like that, the vast majority of Americans in our era, whether they consciously realize it or not, I believe, get far more of their values and their ideas of right and wrong, good and evil, how to be a hero, who you should emulate and who you shouldn't as models for behavior and ethics. They get way more of it, if we're being honest, they get way more of it from movies and TV than from anything else, than from, you know, religious texts, than from ancient mythological texts, certainly than from, you know, reading uh, philosophy books and considering questions of morality in a, in a philosophical kind of sense. You know, what's molding a little kid, especially if he has, you know, somewhat absentee, somewhat negligent parents who don't, you know, have deep conversations with him or her about these sorts of things, what's molding just sort of an average kid growing up right now, what's molding his or her perception of who are good guys, who are bad guys? What's the right way to live and behave and what's wrong? What, what are heroes like? Why should I want to be a hero? If I do want to be a hero, how should I behave? How do I know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in, you know, real life scenarios where there are good and bad guys? And I'm, I'm someone who, by the way, says there's not always good and bad guys, right, in every scenario. Um, if you're a longtime listener of my show, you might have heard me say, like, most wars in history, there's not really a super clear-cut good guy or bad guy. Most wars in human history, it's a war between, you know, bad guys and, like, yeah, maybe you can pull out your moral micrometer and say, well, this, this guy's a little bit, you know, more in the wrong than that guy, but it's extremely rare to find a war that when you really look at it objectively and, you know, with the facts, it's, it's really rare to find a war where it's like totally clear that this side is 100% the good guy and the, the other side is 100% the bad guy. That's just not how it is. In the same way that if you look at most bar fights and street fights in real life, it's very rare. It happens, but it's extremely rare exception that you'll see a bar fight or a street fight where one party was just completely innocent, not at all looking for trouble, completely minding his own business, you know, and then the other side is just completely starting a fight for no, you know, reasonable, coherent reason other than just, oh, I want to fight somebody and I'm evil and this guy looks like a, you know, a good guy and uh, a vulnerable victim, so I'm just going to beat him up for no reason, you know. Um, that's not how, it, in, in, in most cases, talk to a, talk to a person who's worked as a bouncer in like a rough dive bar where there's a lot of brawls talk to someone who's been a street cop in some rough areas you know um and who's had to deal with uh breaking up fights and that sort of thing and uh, they'll tell you like most of the time there's a lot of blame to go around for a fight happening right so you know but there still are cases where there's good and there's evil 
and there's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And it's not always obvious which is which. And it's not always obvious, you know, how to be a hero in your own life, in your own way. And fictional things and the most powerful media we have for telling stories. And it's, you know, we are storytelling creatures. We've been telling stories probably since we even evolved into our current modern species of humans. For sure, we've been telling stories since there's been recorded history, and there's every reason to believe it goes back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years uh, further back in, in prehistory than that. We are storytelling species. It's how we make sense of the world. It's one of the things that I very much think, you know, Jordan Peterson is correct about. I wish he would, you know, stay more in that stuff and psychology stuff instead of constantly going into politics where he often sounds like a stupid neocon. But, um, and, and, you know, before him, people like Joseph Campbell or before him, the, the Carl Jung and the other early, early uh, Jungian psychologists, you know, digging into archetypes and the power of myth and all this sort of stuff, they understood that stories and myths are extremely powerful and necessary to us, both as individuals and for functioning societies. And we've been telling stories and myths for way longer than we've had anything resembling a scientific method. And we've even been telling stories and myths for a lot longer than we've had anything resembling what we think of as philosophy. And so our brains respond to stories, even, you know, a nerd like me, even a former academic like me, who is an egghead and likes to think about things in philosophical and or scientific terms as much as possible. Still, even a guy like me, my brain responds more powerfully to myths and stories than it does to science and philosophy. That's just how it is. So if we as human beings respond most powerfully to stories in terms of trying to figure out how to be a hero in our own way, in our own lives... And, you know, we need these things. And if things like movies and television are by far, and I, and I think I'm just, you know, indisputably correct about both of these propositions, if movies and TV are by far in terms of how they affect the vast majority of people, say, in 21st century America, um, the most powerful mediums, or media, I should say, right? This is what happens when I go off the reservation, unscripted, with, you know, very minimal notes then it really fucking matters. It is not a trivial thing. What is done and has been done over the past bunch of years to deconstruct the heroes in comic books, to deconstruct the heroes in movies and beloved franchises, right? So it is not a trivial thing that the Wokies have long since taken over most of the comic book industry and have, you know, done their thing to... All kinds of comic book heroes. Even even before they got into taking over the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they were already taking over the comic book side of things. And then the Marvel Cinematic Universe sort of followed once Disney took them over. It matters. It matters that the Wokies took over and deconstructed the heroes of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And, you know, we could, we could list it all day long, all the different heroes that they've taken over and destroyed. And if you pay attention to a lot of the recent deconstructions, whether it's Amazon's Rings of Power doing, you know, to the Tolkien universe, what Disney has done to Marvel and Indiana Jones and Star Wars and all these different examples, 
not only are they completely shitting on long-standing heroes who have been inspiring hero figures to generations of people, but also if you pay attention to the underlying morality of a lot of these deconstructionist woke stories, you'll see that even their their new substitute heroes, which are almost always female, and um, you know often check off other diversity boxes as well, but they're almost always female. These new heroes who purport to be like sidekicks to the old hero that they're rebooting or you know doing another sequel to, and then they always end up actually being the real protagonist, and the, the old hero that everybody actually wants to see is just, you know, at best a sidekick in his own movie. Not only are they destroying these beloved characters, and that, you know, makes people, even if they don't consciously understand in their own mind what's going on, their subconscious kind of understands, like, there's some reason I don't like the new Star Wars movie as much as I love the originals. There's some, there's some reason I don't like the new Indiana Jones movie as much as I love the originals, right? But if you pay attention, even the new you know, diverse characters and largely, uh, you know, Mary Sue females usually, um, if you pay attention to the things that they do, they're often behaving in ways that are not at all what most people would actually consider the good guy way to behave or, you know, the heroic thing to do. And so if you pay attention to the underlying morality, even of the new substitute uh, heroines that they're usually giving us, who are always boring, unlikable Mary Sues, who are good at everything just by showing up and don't really go through anything even remotely resembling a true character arc. The the underlying morality is often fucked up. And you can kind of look at a lot of them and say, I think whether they realize it or not, and maybe it's conscious in some cases, maybe they're trying to just deconstruct the entire idea of good and bad. I think in some cases they are. But I don't think the people writing these things are always consciously doing it. I think what's happening is their own fucked up pseudo-morality is just leaking into their writings, sometimes even subconsciously, and they probably don't even realize that many of the things that they have their new quote-unquote heroes doing are actually extremely unheroic and oftentimes even like more what you would expect the villain of a story to do. So that's why these things matter. So sorry for the kind of rant within a rant there, but, you know, I do get kind of annoyed when people are like, well, why do you care what happens to Star Wars? It's just kids stuff. You know, it's just a, a silly little story. Why do you care what happens to the heroes of Marvel Comics? Why do you care, you know, what somebody does to some film franchise? Like, so what? If you don't like it, just don't go watch it. Whatever. It's like, well, no. Aside from the fact that, you know, it, it hurts me and pisses me off personally to watch characters that I loved and kind of grew up with and that, you know, modeled heroism to me. To see them just completely deconstructed and shit on, you know, it hurts me personally, as I think it does for many people. But also, honestly, I worry about the young people growing up now who are still forming their perceptions of good and bad and what's heroic and what's not. That they're being given these extremely defective hero stories in which very often the characters who are, you know, functioning as at least the protagonist, we might say are behaving in ways that are not not at all what most people think a hero would do, using just sort of basic morality, even setting aside political ideology, just really basic fundamental morality, you know, golden rule type shit. Very often, the new protagonists, 
the new, you know, faux heroes or heroines in most cases, they're teaching bad lessons to kids. You know, go watch the most of the movies and TV shows of Marvel Phase 4. Go watch most of the things put out by Disney Star Wars and pay attention and you'll very often find the people who are presented as the good guys and the heroes very often are not behaving well and doing things that you could make an extremely strong case for are actually bad. Because, yeah, I think whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, let's just be honest about what is, okay? For the vast majority of kids and young adults growing up in 21st century America, things like TV shows and movies are performing the role that used to be performed by, you know, mythological tales told by storytellers in very early times and then eventually um, by religious and quasi-religious mythologies. And you can say, like, oh, that they shouldn't be doing that, they should be looking back, you know, to the Bible or whatever it is that you personally believe in, but okay, it doesn't really matter, that's not what's happening. And it's not going to happen anytime in the foreseeable future in this reality. Most kids growing up are going to get their models. And models are always more important than, like, lectures or instructions, right? It's always more powerful. If someone tells you, you know, you want to know how to do the right thing? Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. You know what's a lot more powerful? Modeling it. Whether it's how you know, a real-life example of proper behavior and heroic action lives and behaves, or whether it's a mythological one. And so I think deconstructing a lot of our kind of modern pop culture, which the term, in my mind, kind of trivializes the impact that it really has on people's psychology and morality, to, to destroy so many of those heroes and to substitute new ones that are not really heroic and that are, you know, deeply flawed in a number of ways, I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for the developing psychology and morality of young people. So anyway, let me end that rant and finally get to the matter at hand. And, um, you know, I've got kind of a long drive today, a couple hours. So, you know, thanks for kind of keeping me company, I guess. Maybe I'm keeping you company. You're listening to this on a long drive of your own. But, what do I mean with the title of this episode, Orange Marches of the Woke Progressives? Okay, so what are Orange Marches? Well, as I alluded to way back at the beginning, or near the beginning anyway, it comes from Irish history and politics. So as most people probably at least have a vague idea of, there are tensions and problems between the Catholic and Protestant populations of Ireland that go back centuries. And, you know, the Protestant population of Ireland is mostly pro-UK. They're the ones that didn't want Ireland to exit the British Empire and Commonwealth. They're the ones who, you know, were largely behind preventing Northern Ireland from leaving the British Empire and Commonwealth, even when um, the southern part, which is, you know, mostly Catholic, did exit the British Empire. They're the reason why Northern Ireland to this day is still nominally part of the UK. There, there are some exceptions. There were some Protestants who were nationalists or Republicans, meaning they wanted Ireland to be independent. But, you know, they were certainly a relatively small minority of Protestants who thought that way. The vast majority of Protestants were also, you know, pro-UK, pro-Union, as they would have said. 
and then, you know, the Catholic Irish are overwhelmingly nationalist slash Republican, meaning they wanted to exit the British Empire, be a self-governing republic, right? And that this has spilled over into violence in many ways over the years. So orange marches are a thing that pro-Union, pro-UK, Protestant Irish, which, you know, for over a century have been overwhelmingly in the north of the country, the, the parts that are still part of the UK politically. It's a thing that they do to commemorate important Protestant victories. And they do these various parades to celebrate Protestant victories and thereby celebrate Protestant control. You know, they used to do it to celebrate Protestant control of all of Ireland. And, um, you know, since the majority of the island left the British Empire, they do it to sort of like celebrate that the North is still part of the UK. And even though it's somewhat changed in the last few decades, that in general, the Protestants in the North anyway, still tend to have a bit more power. I mean, the Good Friday Accords have, have done somewhat to ameliorate the situation and address some of these issues. And it's why the violence, you know, simmered down a lot in the last few decades. Um, but, you know, in general, even to this day, I'm pretty sure if you looked it up, you'd find that in Northern Ireland, the Protestants still have, on average, you know, a higher standard of living, a little bit, you know, more resources, better access to certain, you know, government services and things, and all that kind of stuff. So, these Orange Marches, they commemorate Protestant victories over the Catholics that established and maintained Protestant dominance in Ireland, and... I think most or all of them go back to the era of the so-called Glorious Revolution. So, quick Cliff Notes version of the history of the Glorious Revolution. In the late 17th century, you got a British monarch who was acting in a very pro-Catholic manner. This would have been, um, uh, I believe, James II. Sorry, in a bit of a brain fog from all my depression and, and stresses lately, um, believe it was James II, who was acting in a pro-Catholic fashion in which we now know he was even secretly a Catholic himself. And by that point, in most areas of Great Britain, the island of Great Britain, Protestant dominance and the established Protestant churches were pretty well ensconced by that point. You know, this is post-Elizabeth, uh, post-James I. So in England, the Protestant um, Church of England was, you know, pretty firmly established by that point. And in Scotland, the Church of Scotland or the Presbyterian Church was largely established. And so, essentially, a lot of the Protestant elite of the country decided they wanted this, you know, pro-Catholic king out. And they wanted a Protestant monarch to come back in and take over. And so they made a deal with Prince William of Orange, a Dutch prince who was married to a Protestant uh, relative of the reigning British monarch. They essentially invited William of Orange, this Dutch prince, to kind of come in and take over the throne of England, which he was happy to do. And this is what's called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. In terms of Eng England especially, but the island of Great Britain as a whole, th there was relatively little violence in this happening because 
far as we can tell, you know, not everybody for sure, but a big majority of the population either, you know, vehemently supported William of Orange coming in and taking over, um, or at least, you know, kind of tacitly went along with it. And so it was mostly not very violent, William taking over the island of Great Britain in 1688. But in Ireland, it was a different story because Ireland was the one ear, was the one area of the British Isles where you still had a significant Catholic population. In fact, you know, if you looked at the island of Ireland as a whole, it was a majority were Catholic. And so it was in Ireland that the glorious revolution turned into a bloody war. And so, long story short, the Protestant forces of William of Orange triumphed over the Catholics in Ireland and established, you know, British Protestant dominance of Ireland against the wishes of the majority of the population. So, as far as I know, most of the parades that are, that comprise the the so-called Orange Marches are commemorating various Protestant victories. And by the way, these are done by various fraternal societies that have existed for centuries that are pro-Protestantism and pro-UK uh, government. And so um, the biggest and most famous, I believe, is, is what's called the Orange Order, but there are several others. And basically, think of these as sort of being similar to, like, Masons or Elks Lodge or whatever, but with this, like, strong, militant, you know, Protestant, pro, pro-Protestant, pro-UK, anti-Catholic, anti-Irish you know Irish Republic streak. And so these organizations are the main, you know, thing that organizes and carries out these parades, these orange marches. So, as far as I recall, um, the biggest one happens in July, and it is commemorating William of Orange's big victory at the Battle of the Boyne in Ireland, which I've actually been to the site on one of my trips to Ireland. And that was, you know, considered what one of the big decisive battles in which William crushed Catholic resistance to his control of the British Isles. And so to the Protestants in Ireland, this is seen as like a giant, you know, heroic victory. And to the Catholics, it's seen as like a very dark day that, you know, reestablished and, and kind of ratified their um, oppression and subservience under the UK boot. I believe some of the various orange marches. And by the way, I think they pretty much all happen like late spring and then through the summer. There's a number of them. And if memory serves, I believe some of them also celebrate earlier British slash Protestant victories over Catholic slash nationalist resistance in Ireland. Um, Some of them, I believe, also commemorate various victories of Oliver Cromwell, um, roughly uh, 40, 50 years before William of Orange and the Glorious Revolution. Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England for a number of years after the English Civil War of the mid-17th century, so roughly, you know, 40 years or so before the Glorious Revolution. Oliver Cromwell also had a number of big victories that are commemorated and celebrated by Irish Protestants, including in the form of these parades. So, these Orange Marches, they have always been very controversial, the the people who do them and the people who, you know, the Protestants who support them, they see it as like a patriotic thing. They see it as, you know, like how patriotic Americans might go out and like commemorate the Battle of Saratoga, the American victory there, or commemorate the 
British surrender at Yorktown, you know, as like a patriotic thing on their, from their perspective. But to the Catholics, of course, this is seen as a horrible, you know, oppressive thing that established them being a, for, for, you know, centuries to come, being a subservient, oppressed group. And so just the fact that these orange marches happen kind of ruffles the feathers of the Catholic population of Ireland. And really, since, you know, the southern part of the island got its independence as a republic, this has mostly been a controversy in the north, because as far as I know, there's not many people in the south who are doing orange marches. So the Catholics see this as a very controversial thing that, you know, kind of offends them. It's all, or, or maybe a, another way to put it that's even kind of more illustrative is, imagine if quote-unquote patriotic American nationalists did like parades and stuff to celebrate big American victories in Indian conflicts, still to this day, right? And um, even commemorated like massacres. Imagine if there was some like fraternal, patriotic, nationalist American society, right, that um, was going out and doing parades to celebrate the Sand Creek Massacre or the Wounded Knee Massacre. And let's say, you know, from the perspective of those people carrying it out, they're just like, hey, this is a patriotic thing. We're celebrating our country's, you know, uh, victory here, whatever. But, of course, from the perspective of the existing Native American population, uh, particularly the tribes that were directly involved in this, they would see this as, like, extremely offensive. You know, uh, not not too far off from how, like, the Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois, saw the Nazis wanting to march there, right, the the case that gave us that, you know, famous uh, ruling on free speech back when the ACLU was still really solid on things like free speech. But what really tends to be the most offensive and provocative from the perspective of the Catholic population of Northern Ireland about these orange marches is not just that they do them. That would be, you know, kind of kind of ruffle their feathers, offend them a bit, whatever. But it's the fact that very often the organizers of the Orange Marches will deliberately plan routes that go right through big Catholic neighborhoods and enclaves and things. So in many of the cities and towns of Northern Ireland, I mean, there are some cities and towns that are just kind of known like, yeah, that's a you know predominantly Catholic town or that's a predominantly Protestant town. But in many of the cities and towns, particularly the larger ones, in Northern Ireland, even to this day, it's a little bit better than it was, you know, decades ago, but even to this day, there's still, like, areas of a big city, like Belfast, for example, that are just known, like, that's a Catholic neighborhood, that's a Protestant neighborhood, like, it's it's very, you know, the, the segregation, and it really was segregation for a long time, like, formal segregation, not not too dissimilar from, like, Jim Crow, now, that stuff has eased somewhat uh, in the post-Good Friday Accord era with the, you know, simmering down of, of much of the violence and also the rolling back of a lot of the formal legal segregationist sort of measures discriminating against Catholics overtly. A lot of that stuff has, has uh, my understanding anyway, and I've studied it a bit and, you know, visited uh, a few times, but, you know, it's always possible I'm, I'm wrong. But my perception is that even though a lot of those things have, you know, faded somewhat or been rolled back somewhat, 
there's still the legacy, right? Just as there is with the end of legal Jim Crow in the U.S., obviously there's still, you know, plenty of cities in America where there's clearly, like, ghettos. Um, or, you know, even if it's not quite that bad to be called that, there's at least, like, people just know, like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the black part of town, right? So what really ruffles the feathers of a lot of Catholics is not just that they do these things, commemorating these victories that to the Catholics are, you know, these horrible, you know, oppressive victories against them, but that they, the Orange Martyrs very often, I don't know if they still do it this way, they certainly did during the height of what's called the Troubles, right, the the conflict in Northern Ireland from like the late 60s through to the late 90s when the Good Friday Agreements stopped the worst of the violence. So I I don't know if they still do this, but I, I know during the Troubles especially, the Orange Marchers would deliberately route their marches right through the heart of Catholic neighborhoods. And that would often lead to violence. You know, a lot of Catholics who, if they knew the Protestants were just marching in their own neighborhoods to commemorate their victories, they would see it as like, yeah, that's kind of offensive, fuck those assholes, or, you know, whatever. But they wouldn't be motivated to go out and riot, or go out and throw rocks, or, you know, maybe even plot worse violence than that. But when these Protestant orange martyrs are deliberately marching right through the heart of a Catholic neighborhood. A lot of those people, again, it's sort of like if an American nationalist organization was doing a parade in, I don't know, D.C. to commemorate the Wounded Knee Massacre is a good thing, I'm sure the Lakota Nation would be offended by that, and rightfully so. But just imagine how much worse it would be if that American nationalist organization insisted on doing their celebration of the Wounded Knee Massacre, like, right through the Lakota Reservation. Like, just imagine the potential for violence and how much that ratchets up the tension. So then the question is, why... And, and by the way, I gotta give credit to my grad school mentor, my grad school advisor at the University of Tennessee, you know, going on 18 years ago now. He, I believe, is retired. I, I fell out of touch with him within a year or two of graduating and getting my master's from UT. I, I, I email corresponded with him a bit off and on for maybe like a year uh, or so after I graduated, but I've long since fallen out of touch with him. But he was a good guy and a very good professor. And he was, I might have mentioned him before on the podcast at some point or another, but he was a very good professor and a very good mentor in a lot of ways. Now, he was very much a left-wing guy, but he was the sort of left-winger I can I can respect and can agree with on many things. I have no idea you know, where he's been in recent years, I kind of don't want to know because he was a great left winger when I knew him. And I, I, I'm scared to know, like, did he lose his shit as so many people I used to admire did through the combination of COVID, George Floyd and TDS. Many leftists that I, I had respected for many years, you know, completely lost my respect sometime between 2016 and like now for just completely losing their mind over Trump, the George Floyd BLM stuff, and then COVID, or some combination thereof. 
very often all three, right? So I, I kind of don't want to know if he got broken by any of those things. But when I knew him, he was very much what I would consider a good left-winger. You know, a person that I could have reasonable uh, discussions and debates with over economic policy. A guy who, by the way, would give credit to conservatives for for certain things. Like, he actually, I, I once heard him give credit to some of Margaret Thatcher's economic policies. He He would have disagreed with her on many things. But I remember him saying, like, because he was intellectually honest, I remember him saying, at least some of Margaret Thatcher's economic policies, he was willing to give credit and say, yeah, you know, that helped improve the British economy from its low point in the 70s. And he was independent-minded in that he was, you know, kind of a Eugene Debs to Jimmy Dore sort of a progressive, where he was very, very much anti-war, very, very much pro-civil liberties. He, you know, was often involved with anti-war protests and things. And he was a very independent, intellectually honest leftist. And I always respected him. Again, ho- hopefully he didn't uh, lose his mind in the last seven years or so, but I kind of don't want to know. Um, he's a good guy and good professor. I learned a lot from him. And by the way, he also was a brave man who stopped a mass shooting. And you can look this up. Back um, a few years after I left after I'd graduated from UT and after I had already kind of fallen out of touch with him, somehow or other, I happened to hear or see a news story. So Professor Bosted was a Unitarian, and he was very active in uh, a Unitarian church in Knoxville. Theologically and culturally, very, very left church, you know, so I'd agree with them on some things. I'm sure in the post-Trump era, they probably have gone even further uh, down the deep end, so probably I, I agree with him on fewer things than I than I used to, but you know it is what it is. He was an active member of of a Unitarian church there, which again, you know, I generally would agree with them on things like war, uh, a number of other important issues. But anyway, uh, some kind of mentally ill right winger. I can't. This might have been in the early years of the Obama presidency when some right-wingers were suffering really bad, you know, Obama derangement syndrome. Some local right-winger with some obvious, you know, psychological mental baggage decided that he was going to strike a blow against, you know, evil leftism by going and shooting up the Unitarian church that my professor was an active member of. And so this, this nut job went in there can't remember if he had a, a shotgun or, or a rifle or what, but he went in there, shot, started shooting. Um, I forget the details. It's been a while since, since I looked it up. You can probably Google it up, uh, if you want to see more detail on this. The professor, his name was John Bostead. As far as I know, he's still alive, although he's probably similar, uh, he's, he's probably well into his eighties by now. He's probably at least as old as Joe Biden, if not, a few clicks older still, if he's still with us. But anyway, he would have definitely been at least in his 70s when this happened. And his last name is spelled B-O-H-S-T-E-D-T. Oh, by the way, he's, he was also a very good lecturer, and he had a great lecturing voice. Like, he's one of these guys I have envy. He had this deep, deep lecturing voice. His voice sounded very much like Harrison Ford in his prime. 
So I definitely had some envy there. But, um, you know, people compliment my voice, say it's smooth and soothing and very kind of like, you know, mid-range, not super high, not super deep, whatever. But, you know, I can't help but envy people who have smooth, deep voices, whether it's Professor Bosted, whether it's, you know, Clifton Duncan, somebody like that. I, I always have envy of people gifted with those sort of deeper, more resonant voices. But anyway, you can look it up. You can look up, um, you know, keyword search like Bosted, Tennessee Unitarian shooting or something like that, and you'll probably find it right away. So this guy comes in, starts shooting up the place. I can't remember. I think he hit a few people uh, initially. I can't remember if anybody died or not. But he either his gun jammed or he was reloading or even just paused the shooting or whatever. And my professor, who again was at least in his 70s at that point, I think, probably in his early 70s, I would guess, my professor, this, you know, left-wing anti-war activist Unitarian, tackled the guy to the ground, wrestled with him. I think one or two other members of the congregation also, you know, helped. But my professor tackled this dude to the ground, wrestled with him, got the gun away from him, subdued him until the cops showed up, and prevented this, this crazy asshole from shooting a whole bunch more people than he probably intended to. So, you know, again, I have nothing but respect for Professor Bosted on that count as well. I mean, you know, unlike so many other mass shootings where people just kind of stand there or cower in fear or whatever, like, my elderly professor was a fucking mensch when the shit was hitting the fan. So I have nothing but, you know, respect and admiration. He's a hero for that moment, too, in my opinion. But anyway, he was very knowledgeable about the history of modern Britain and the British Isles, including Ireland. I studied Britain and the British Empire and Irish history with him very closely for the couple of years I was there. And in particular, he had a lot of expertise and had done a lot of work on mass political mobilization and demonstrations and riots and how they work and, you know, the reality of these things, what tends to cause them, how they play out, etc. And so he was very good at explaining sort of the psychology and the social psychology and the dynamics of things like, you know, political protests and riots and things like this. And so he was very good at explaining these orange marches and why the Protestants would do them and why the Catholics found them so offensive and even provocative. And one of the things that stuck with me is he said, you know, why do they feel the need to go into what they know are hostile Catholic neighborhoods? Like, if it's just all about celebrating their history and their own form of patriotism, why don't they just stay in their neighborhoods and do it and not provoke any violence or anything like that? And his, his answer was twofold. His answer was, well, number one, it's a way to show dominance, right? Like, why does one gang go in and cause trouble in what they know is the turf of another gang? Well, there's the, you know, immediate kind of nuts and bolts economic reason of, like, maybe they want to expand their uh, drug-dealing territory at the expense of their rival. But even if they're not immediately taking, trying to, you know, occupy and take over that territory, they still might occasionally go in to hostile territory and just start shit and, you know, provoke fights and whatever, maybe do a drive-by or whatever. And it's, it's partly it's a way to try and demonstrate dominance, right? If I can go into your neighborhood 
and cause trouble and provoke violence and inflict violence. And especially I can get away with it, which, you know, the Protestants, more often than not in much of modern Irish history, the Protestants had the bulk of law enforcement and the justice system on their side, like very biased in their favor, just like the Klan would have in, you know, early to mid 20th century American southern states, where they're actually, you know, causing a lot of the violence, but the bulk of the institutions of law enforcement are actually really on their side, whether they say so publicly or not. So partly it's a way to flex. It's a way to go into someone's neighborhood, offend them, provoke them, violate their territory. And, you know, if you do it and there is no violent reaction from the other side, it's, it's a big flex. It's a way to just, you know, piss on their territory and show dominance. And to kind of, you know, you know, they know, and you know they know you know, that even if the Catholics, let's say, don't, go out in the street and, you know, fight or riot or whatever against this. They know that if the Catholics show restraint in that situation, it's largely because the Catholics understand that the cops and the courts are all going to side with the Protestants if any violence happens. So it's just a way to, you know, rub your nose in. You are subservient. I am dominant and I'm flexing to remind you of your position relative to mine. And that's even what's happening if you just march and no violence or anything occurs. Now imagine you do an orange march into a Catholic neighborhood and a lot of Catholics come out and maybe start, you know, screaming at you, throwing things, and eventually it escalates back and forth, tit for tat, turns into a violent, you know, riot. And a street brawl and whatever, right? Well, in that case, the institutions of power during this time period overwhelmingly side with the Protestants, including, you know, the dominant media, and so what's the narrative going to be in that case? Oh, my God, look at, you know, these these loyal orange men are just, you know, trying to celebrate their history and their heritage and their patriotism. And look at this. These, you know, Catholic papist barbarians are so violent and tend towards criminality and even terrorism that they felt the need to come out and confront are peaceful marches of patriotism with their violence and terrorism. And so it puts the Catholics in a can't-win situation. If they just sit on their hands and bite their tongue and let these people march to their neighborhoods, then it's, you know, it's a flex. It's you're pissing on my territory and getting away with it. And reiterating your dominance. But on the other hand, if I go out there and resist this, even if I intend to resist it nonviolently, there's a good chance that somebody on either side is going to start, you know, throwing rocks and it's going to escalate. And then because the Protestants control the apparatus that creates the narratives, they can then spin it as, look at these, you know, violent, criminal, papist barbarians. See, we need to keep them under our boot. Because if we don't have them under enough control, look at what they're going to do. They're going to go break things and cause violence, even in the face of a peaceful march, you see. So, number one reason is to flex and show dominance. Number two reason, if it does, you know, provoke violence, to then use this as yet more evidence that our dominance is justified because we're trying to keep these violent monsters under control. So, when you look at the Wokies taking over all of these beloved heroes and franchises and things, 
and then subverting them and deconstructing them. The question might arise, well, why don't they just create their own new heroes? Why don't they create their own cinematic universes? Why don't they create their own, you know, fictional worlds? Why do they have to take Tolkien's world? Why do they have to take the Marvel world? Why do they have to take Indiana Jones, etc., etc., etc.? Why don't they just make a new thing that's, you know, their thing? People will often say it's because, the, number one, the executives at the top who are not, some of them I think are, but not all of them are ideologues. Many of them are just, you know, just quote-unquote money people, Right. And so they think, well, we need to use, you know, why are there so many reboots and prequels and sequels being made? Why are there so few new things being created by Hollywood in recent years and even decades? Partly it's, if they want to make a big budget thing with the potential for a giant profit margin, the safer bet is to go with an established franchise, right? It's starting to change in very recent years, but, you know, for a long time it's like, if you made a new Star Wars or a new Indiana Jones movie, that's guaranteed to make a pile of money, even if it's not great. It's going to make a pile of money. Whereas if you create some like new sci-fi universe or some new archaeologist hero, it's much more of a risky gamble. Will it, you know, make a bunch of money or will it flop? So, yeah, that's part of it for sure, is the desire to hedge their bets and be cautious and conservative in a financial sense by going with, you know, just the latest iteration of an existing franchise instead of creating anything new. That's true. But I think we can't overlook, from the perspective of both the executives who actually are ideologues, like, say, a Kathleen Kennedy, or from the perspective of kind of the actual writers, directors, actors, and kind of mid- to lower-level people actually, you know, making these things. Many of them, I believe, are true believers in this crazy, woke ideology. And so by taking over, instead of creating, just creating, you know, Ray as a hero in a brand new cinematic universe, they'd rather take over the Star Wars name and bring in Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and shit on them. Because it's their version of marching into the Catholic territory to exhibit dominance. They're flexing. If they can deconstruct your heroes and, you know, substitute a new diverse woke female uh, protagonist and shit all over your beloved heroes that you've looked up to since you were a kid, you know, 40 years ago or whatever, they're flexing. They're pissing on your territory. And if, you know, you keep your mouth shut and just keep consuming their products, they've won in that way. But if you raise a big fuss, they can then point to you and say, look at you evil, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever... Why are you so, you know, racist and evil? You can't stand, you know, a new black hero in your franchise. You can't stand a new female hero in your franchise. Look how deplorable you are. This movie isn't made for you. In fact, if your kind of people don't like the new Star Wars movie, that's good. Because it's not for you. We don't want you to see our movie. We don't want you to like our movie. And so that's what you see going on with a lot of the fan baiting stuff. Or, you know, another good example is the Kenobi show with the black, um, I forget the character's name, but the black, you know, actress who was brought in to be the kind of, you know, bait and switch for Kenobi and to be the real protagonist of a show that's called Kenobi, right? They're orange marching through your, you know, if you're a fan of the old things and hate the new things like me, they're orange marching through your neighborhood to show dominance. And then if you push back, 
they then, you know, hop on it and say, look, this shows how deplorable you are, how hateful you are, how bigoted you are. We don't even want your business because you're, you know, a white nationalist, borderline Nazi. Now, with the wokey orange marches, you know, through fictional uh, cinematic universes and things, there's another level to it that, as far as I know, the, the real orange marchers don't even really do, which is they also will gaslight. So they'll, you know, create rings of power or something like that, and, you know, they'll have all this, like, weird, obvious, awkward, forced diversity shoehorn into it, basically vandalizing the source material, I should say. And very often, they'll, they'll talk up the diversity in their marketing and, like, their interviews pre-release and whatever. Like, if you watch the way the directors and writers and actors and things in these productions watch the way that they talk about their production, like, in pre-release interviews and things like that, most of the time, they'll say little to nothing about the actual story, about like the, the genuine um, characters of the characters. The main things they'll say about the characters are touting how many woke diversity boxes they check. And oftentimes, simultaneously, they'll, they'll say that they're trying to, you know, honor the source material and they love the source material, right? Whether it's Tolkien's books or the original Star Wars films or whatever, they'll say how much they love that stuff and honor that stuff, and yet out the other side of the mouth, they'll say, but we're trying to update it because it was too white, it was too male, it was too whatever. And so, oh yeah, we love Star Wars, we're trying to honor it, and also it was racist and sexist, and so we have to fix it. And then in talking about, you know, who's the director of it, who are the stars of it, they won't talk about the actual substance of the story a lot of the time, and they won't actually talk about the characters as characters. They'll talk about their woke diversity superficial characteristics. They'll talk about, oh, isn't it great that we have the first, you know, black elf? Uh, we have the first female dwarf of color, you know? And that's all they'll talk about, is that shit. And then, if someone who is a fan of the original source material, who may very well not really be racist or sexist or anything like that at all, um, if, if somebody like that says, like, hey, you know, you're really kind of fucking with this beloved franchise in ways that are messing around with it and, um, you know, destroying the source material and the characters we used to know and love, and um, I don't like this, they'll go, why do you care if there's, you know, characters who are suddenly made black or gay or female or whatever? or new characters inserted that weren't part of the original source material, who are, you know, female Mary Sues who are also gay and whatever. Why do you care? It's only because you're an ist and a phobe, right? And it's like, they, they, they now want to act like they're old school um, diversity fans, right? Like, like what we thought diversity meant in the 1990s of like colorblind society and, you know, um, kind of like not trying as much as possible to, like, not take race into account or sex into account or whether someone's gay or not into account and to judge them by their achievements and their character, etc. So they're gaslighting you, right? In their, in their initial announcements and press conferences, all they want to talk about is how many uh, characters they have race and gender swapped, how many new characters they've shoehorned in there that are black and trans and whatever. And then as soon, as soon as someone who's a fan of the original, you know, stuff says, like, hey, man, you're kind of fucking with the franchise. Like, if you want to do something like that, just start a new thing, and it'll, it'll you know, 
uh, succeed or fail on its own merits. Instead, they'll they'll gaslight and they'll say, you know, oh, you just don't like our. We weren't even trying to talk about race and and gender and whatever and LGBTQ stuff. Uh, we're just trying to make a good movie, and yes, some of the characters happen to be black, gay, or whatever. Uh, you're the one bringing this up, you you cultural trog- troglodyte, right? And so it you know adds an additional layer of insult to injury, because now they're pretending like you're the one who first brought up race or gender or LGBTQ stuff or whatever, when in fact they were sort of like the aggressors in that sense. They were coming into your territory and taking it over, and then when you raise a complaint, they're acting like they were totally, you know, colorblind and and genderblind and whatever. They were completely, like, not even paying attention. They were just trying to hire the best actors and directors, and gee whiz, it just happened that they all happened to check at least three diversity boxes. And you're the, the crazy person for bringing race and sex and all these things into it. So, and I've been thinking, this has been rattling around in my head for a long time, this this metaphor of the woke takeover and deconstruction of beloved heroes and franchises as, you know, being a metaphorical version of the Orange Marchers. And those of us who don't like this shit as being in the shoes of the Catholics who, you know, if Disney was just creating a whole bunch of brand new characters and completely new cinematic universes and franchises and wanted to make them super woke... I would just not, you know, I wouldn't patronize them. I wouldn't go see these things. But I wouldn't care nearly as much as I do when they're doing it to long-standing, beloved, established characters and, you know, franchises and universes. In the same way that I'm sure a lot of Irish Catholics, if the Protestants were just doing their orange marches in their own neighborhoods, yeah, they'd say like, uh, that. you know, I find that kind of offensive, that, that's kind of fucked up. F those people, whatever. But it would not have nearly the same provocative impact as when the Orange Marchers deliberately choose to march right through the heart of a Catholic neighborhood. And in a way, I think there's a very similar thing, pretty much almost the exact same thing happening as far as the woke takeover of beloved product brands, right? Why there's plenty of big money people who are sponsoring wokeism in various in various ways you know billionaires and people like that and again you know some of them it's a cynical divide and conquer thing i believe some of them might actually truly believe in this stuff and some of them it probably is a weird mixture you know people often act on weird mixtures of motivations so presumably if somebody really wanted to start a an explicitly um woke beer company, let's say, or an explicitly woke razor company and wanted to, you know, have nothing but trans people and whatever in their advertising from day one and wanted to, you know, try and sell you on the rainbow razor or the woke beer or whatever. It's not just that probably a lot of people, those are small audiences, right? I mean, if you, if you market your product primarily to LGBTQ people, like that's, pretty small audience relative to if you just try to market your razors or your beer to everybody who shaves or likes beer. Um, so it's not, it's not just that they want to take over existing brands because they're more likely to be profitable than, than starting new ones that are explicitly woke from day one. I think that's part of it. 
Sorry, I had to pause for a minute there, uh, the recording. Hopefully I didn't lose my train of thought too much. I was actually sort of wrapping up, but anyway. Yes, I think when it comes to the more cynical people just concerned with money, you know, why are they taking over Gillette or Bud Light instead of just starting a new razor company or a new beer company? Yes, part of it is they believe that, you know, this long-standing existing brand that people have loved and patronized for generations pretty much guarantees that they'll make a big profit no matter what. Obviously, particularly the case of Bud, Bud Light is proving them wrong, and I've been nothing but happy watching Bud Light fall off a cliff. But from the perspective of the ideologues, the people involved with these operations who really don't care about profits and who may even be ideologically opposed to profit, at least, you know, in theory, very often they still live quite well. But um, it's not just that they see the existing established brand as, you know, more likely to give them bigger profits, even if they take it over and make it a bunch of woke propaganda marketing. But it's also, it's a flex. Particularly in the case of something like Bud Light. I think this is why this is such an important example and has been so powerful. Because Bud Light has, you know, not just been the number one beer in America and I think also in the world for a long time, but it's also, it's the beer that's identified, till recently, with kind of like average working Americans, with like blue-collar people, you know, with people that watch NASCAR, people who listen to country music. Like, those are the biggest patrons of Bud Light, till recently, um, not, you know, wealthy left-wing people in Brooklyn or San Francisco or whatever, those people, if they do drink beer at all, it's going to be some, you know, fancy pants, super organic, woke microbrew. But by taking over Bud Light and bringing in Dylan Mulvaney as part of the marketing, that was a flex, I think, in the eyes of the kind of the mid to low level people who actually carried it out. I think to them, whether they see it that way um, uh, consciously or not in their own minds, I think that's a big part of what it was. It was a flex like, oh, this is the beer that like auto mechanics and bricklayers and plumbers and people like that, you know, that's their beer. Okay, how do you like it now? Look at this. Look who we've got as the spokesman. Right? Instead of a, a sports star or, you know, a good-looking bikini model or whatever, here's a trans TikToker. Have fun. So it's a flex. And again, you know, if you raise a stink about it, it just proves how evil and hateful you are, and then they can also gaslight you and be like, well, gee whiz, why are you even bringing this up? So... I'll go ahead and wrap up. Um, I've got to get out of the car soon, but basically I'll say that I hope that this made sense to you, you know, as I was driving mostly off the cuff stream of consciousness, I had a couple of bullet points jotted on a little piece of paper to keep me sort of on track. Um, hopefully it made sense and wasn't too rambling and hopefully it gave you something to think about. So thank you, dear listener for lending me your ears and your time. I hope I did not waste them and I hope I have done a good job keeping you company on whatever it is you might be doing while you listen to me. Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon.